0: Today I'd like to look at um, Genesis chapter 17. We've been looking at uh, a passage um, some some weeks ago when we looked at Isaiah chapter 51. Isaiah chapter 51 spoke about the fact that we are to look to Abraham and to Sarah. We were from that rock. We were from that quarry. Uh, and what Isaiah was saying is this, you are of that. You are of that stock. And there's something about uh, Abraham and Sarah that spiritually uh kind of uh gives us understanding of who we are in god, and uh he it says that when I called him he was but one, but I blessed him, and I multiplied him yeah so there's something about what God does when he takes an individual person just as just one a solitary individual person with perhaps nothing at all around him or her, and he blesses us, and then He multiplies us. God saying to Isaiah, in fifth, Isaiah 51, you are of that, you are of that. And there's an inheritance, there's a spiritual inheritance that is inlaid in our spiritual life when we receive the Holy Spirit. There is within that, that inlaying of an in, a spiritual inheritance that all of us have. Now, many of us have not experienced it, but it doesn't change the fact that it's there, it's in the ground of our being, in Christ, when Christ comes into, came into us through the Holy Spirit, what was inlaid into us was this, the fact that God can take us as a solitary person in our land, or the place that God has placed us, what we sometimes call the land, just like the promised Land, and then He can bless us and increase us, you know, and multiply us. So we've been talking about that, we've been looking at the life of Abraham, and looking at how God actually affects that in our lives, through looking at Abraham and Sarah. So we've been uh, taking a slow journey, uh, chapter by chapter, each, each week. And today we come to chapter 17. Last week we spoke about the fact that, um, just just briefly, not during the sermon but during the worship, we spoke about the, the, the influence of Hagar uh, upon their lives and the consequences of that. Um, but let's look at chapter 17. Chapter 17 is about 14 to 15 years after chapter 16. Okay. It's about 25 years after Abraham was called in from the Ur of the Chaldees. Yeah. It's about 25 ye- years since then in which God had told Abraham, I want you to leave your, your people and your kindred and your father's house and go to a place that I will show you. And God made a covenant with him that was threefold. I will be God to you. It was a a divine, human, personal relationship with God, such as no one ever at that time could even imagine that God would disclose himself to him and enter into covenant relationship with him, a, a relationship of love. The divine human relationship. The second thing has to do with land. You see, I will make you possess the land that I've given you, I've, that you are in. And the third one is, uh, I will multiply you. This is a threefold covenant um, that God made with Abraham. And because of that is inlaid into us, there's a way in which the covenant that God makes with us has these three elements. The divine intimacy with God. You can hear His voice. But grow in that intimacy. Grow as lovers go, grow. And and there's no uh, word to describe the kind of relationship and intimacy that God wants to have us. That's in the English language that goes deeper than that. Yeah? There's also the land that God has placed us in, in, in which we live in the world, not just in the cloister, but in the world. And the third thing has to do with that. God wants the fact that God wants to make us fruitful. It's there. It's inlaid in us. And I just wonder whether, uh, when we think about that, we shake our heads and we think, "No, I'm not sure whether that really is happening or not." Uh, whatever, whatever you say, I'm not really experiencing that. Or maybe you're experiencing it in a little, in a, in, a, in drips and drabs. Or maybe you are fruitful in that. We shall see. Let's have a look at chapter 17 of uh, G- Genesis. Abraham was 99 years old, and the Lord appeared to Abraham, Abraham sorry, and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me, and be blameless, or perfect, complete, right? that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. And uh, in verse 2, when he said, God says, I will make my covenant with you, it's, he means it differently when he uses the word make a covenant in chapter, chapter 16. When he says make my covenant, he doesn't mean I'm going to ratify the covenant. He means I'm going to effect the covenant. Yeah? Up to this point, Abraham has not seen that much of what God has promised him. But what God was saying in chapter 17 is that I will make or I will give, I will, I will effect the covenant. Yeah? The, I will effect these promises upon your life. Walk before me and be blameless that I may effect the covenant. Make it happen. Make it happen. Make it not just a promise. Not make it just a principle in words, but make it a reality, a, a concrete reality in your life. And between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. So you see the fruitfulness part of the covenant. The, verse 3, Then Abraham fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, which means father. But your name shall be Abraham, which means the father of nations. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. There's that fruitfulness. And I will make, you, I will make nations and kings that shall come forth from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you. To be God to you. There's that divine human relationship. There's that intimacy. And to your offspring after you. Not just to him, but to all of us. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land. Okay, there's the land there of your sojournings. All the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. That's that divine human relationship again. Verse 9, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant. Okay? This is, what, this is the, the effect of it. This is the actual actuality of it. Not just the ratification of it. Not the piece of paper. Not the, not the promise of it. Not the words of it. But the actual covenant itself. The reality of it. Okay? This is my covenant, which you shall keep So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. And an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from the people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for you, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Sarai means my princess. Yeah? But you will call her Sarah, which means princess, not my princess. Not your princess. It's princess, quite apart from you. If you die, she will still be princess. She will not be your princess. She'll be my. I think God will say, my princess. <laughs> She'll be princess <laughs> in, a, in a way that's not contingent or dependent upon you. <laughs> Isn't that great? He doesn't want us to be owned. No woman is owned by a man, a woman does not. Uh, gain her, her self-referencing uh, identity from a man. She is not indirectly a person because he in re- of her relationship with, with a man. The word isha for woman, and the word ish are interesting. the 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 Lord the the, the word for man, uh, male, in uh, in Hebrew is ish. And so many people thought isha, which means derivative of ish means that women are derivative of man. Nope. They're actually a completely different consonants, right? They are, they are, they are not your man, your woman. They're a woman. Not your princess, baby. Alright. And God said to Abraham... Sorry, I got off on that one. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her and... Moreover, I will give you a son by her, I will bless her, and she shall become nations. She shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. And Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in himself, Shall a child be born for a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No. Your wife, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an estab- as everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant, personal covenant, with you, Isaac, who, with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this time next year. We will uh, not continue. We'll just stop here for a while. Um, Let us pray. We welcome your presence today. Unless you feed us, the words could be just right there in front of us, inches away from our mouths, and it won't make any difference. So Lord, we come before you. We throw ourselves at your mercy and ask you to speak to us. Speak to us in such a way that we are fed. Take those words, Lord that they let them not be suspended in the mind or in the air but administer them to our heart our mind our soul our spirit so much so that they will bring forth life in us we recognize the the need for a miracle for that to even happen we recognize that our own intentions no matter how good they are to apply your word are not even enough so we ask you that you will Apply them into us, that we may be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. So here it is. Um, Abraham had received the promise 25 years earlier. received the covenant. It was ratified 14 years earlier. And there he is, 14 years later, nothing has happened. All he has is an Ishmael. All he has is the damage that has been done through the the co-opting of, an, of, of a cultural way of solving his problems. The, the way he had done it was that because of the fact that it was culturally allowed for a slave or a, or a, or a, yeah, a slave uh, who belongs to the, the wife to actually stand in and, and, and um, have a child. And that child would be not the slave's child, but it would be Abraham's. And Sarah's child. It was culturally allowed, but that was not God's way. In some way, he was wanting to fulfill the covenant. So, 14 years, right? 14 years of all that just brought frustration to him. And sometimes, because of this delay, we can actually lose heart, we can lose faith uh, in the fact that God is doing anything. But it's really interesting that in chapter 17, as I, as I mentioned to you, God says, I'm the Lord, I'm God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that so that I may make my covenant between you or effect that covenant so that I could make it happen for you. And so immediately that tells us there is a difference between hearing the covenant, saying yes to it, signing on the dotted line, and actually experiencing it. There is a difference between hearing a word and actually eating it and experiencing it. And what God was doing here in chapter 17, as opposed to ch- ch- chapter 15 and, and 16, was that he's saying, I am, there's a distinction there. You may have received the covenant, you may have ratified the covenant, we may have had this situation in which we, the sacrifices were done and the fire had come and the birds were, uh, sorry, the animals were all laid on the altar. All that may have happened. All that is to tell you, I've already committed to you, the covenant. I've made provision for that. But you're not experiencing it. And what chapter 17 is telling us that there is a gap sometimes between what we've heard from God, what we believe from God, and what we actually experience of it. Does that sound familiar? Some of us experience waiting. And it just seems to be just such a gap between what God says and what God actually does in our lives, what we experience and what we have heard. And so God is actually speaking to Abraham in chapter 17 about how this effect is affected. How is fruitfulness, intimacy with God, and, uh, um, and, um, and the land affected in his life? And so what God says to Abraham, He says, walk before me, yeah, and you know, for, for those who are, have Jewish background, the halach, it's that halakhic kind of kind of understanding? What it means is, you walk as if I'm around. It's not walking with me. That's that's more intensive. You not walk with God. That's intimacy. But what God was saying is, is you walk as if I'm around. It's not as necessary as intimate. But this is, you walk. You caref, Be careful about your walk. Before, be careful how you actually do things, in in uh, in the light of me in the light of His glory and grace, yeah. as we sang just now. So there's something, there's something about this. Um, that I may make my covenant between me and you and, and may multiply you greatly. Up to then, everything is just words. Yeah? Everything is just propositions. Everything is just contract, or not contract, but covenant. But it has not been affected. And God's saying, I want to establish this upon you. I want to establish it as a real reality that it sticks out in the, in the landscape of your life. Yeah? I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, uh, God says in verse 6. And then Abraham fell on his face, and God says to him, before, he, before, before that, I wonder why Abraham fell on his face. I wonder whether it's because he's saying, I don't believe this. I'm sorry, I can't believe it anymore. It's just been so disappointing. 14 years. It's not as if I was young 14 years ago. I was already old. 14 years ago, it was already past time. Now I'm at 99 years old and it's past past time. And he falls on his face. Or did he fall on his face because of the fact that he says, I'm sorry I couldn't walk before you. I got and got Hagar. I'm sorry, I can't do it. I'm I'm sorry, I don't qualify anymore. I don't know what it meant for him to fall on his face. But there are twice he falls on his face <laughs> in this chapter. But falling on your face has to do with the sudden realization of the negatives that are in your life sometimes. Or perhaps Abraham was saying, we are told, Abraham fell on his face because of the fact that he's basically saying, okay, I recognize this is you, God. I'm nothing behind besides you. I'm nothing before you. Whatever it is, something important has taken place that has caused a deep reaction in, in Abraham in, in, in the light of this. Perhaps he comes to the point where he says, this is, this is stuff that is totally impossible. This is something that I've given 25 years of my life, got out of Ur, and now I'm here 25 years later. I'm 99 years old. I don't have it within me to do any of these three things. I can't believe you, God, because it's not happened. I don't have any, the strength for land. I don't have the strength for um, progeny at all. I can't be fruitful. That's just not possible. And I wonder whether sometimes we, in our Christian life, can actually come to this place in which it's harder for you to believe promises in a simple way anymore. It's just, just very difficult. And perhaps time has delayed the fulfillment of these promises. You're not seeing them come to pass. And I feel that God has something for us today. And just understanding that God is is driven to not make promises to us without wanting to make them happen in our lives. And may I say, you may feel an impasse in your life. You may feel that things are just suspended or stuck. And you may think, well, God isn't doing anything. What I want to put, it to, you, put to you is the fact that God is actually driving us towards the fulfillment and establishment, the effecting of His promises. And so he says, Behold, my covenant is with you. Maybe not effected, but it is with you. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. That's. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you make you into nations. He can't even get one son. And God's saying, I'll make you into nations. By that time, I don't know. If I were Abraham, I think God is in the in La La Land or something. There is no parity between everything that God's saying and everything that and anything that I'm experiencing. And I, I just, I just want to. Just put, place it there. Because you may think I'm saying things that have no relevance, no relation to what you are experiencing when I speak about these things. It may be that you, as, as you are listening to what, what the Bible is talking about, you may say, there's no point of contact between what God is saying and what I'm experiencing. The only part that I relate to is that nothing happened. And this is the offense of it. This is the offense of the Word of God because the Word of God comes out not from our experience, our lived experience. It comes out of left field. It comes from beyond our experience. Its origin is from the other side. It's nothing to do with my side. It comes from the other side. Amen? And the first thing that God does with Abraham is this. I'm going to change your identity. I'm going to change your name. I'm going to change you so that your name is, does not arise from your particular personality type or your particular lived experience or your experiences in life or your, or your particular leanings or your particular intuitions. It does not come out of that. It comes from me. It comes from so much from me and not from you that you will think this is absolutely crackers. So that when God speaks, He speaks out of Himself, He does not speak out of ourselves. Does that make sense? It's kind of disturbing, isn't it? It doesn't arise from our own subjective or our own historical experiences. It arises out of Himself to such an extent that it will offend you. Because God is making you, not you making yourself. He is making you, and the work that He does is of Him, not of ourselves. It is not even relatable at first. And so as we are listening to the Word of God, what we have to do is that we have to somehow, by faith, submit to whatever the Word of God says without necessarily needing it to be validated by any lived experience that we've had. That's the only way to, 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 to hear the word of God. It cannot be heard by seeing whether it, fil- it comes through the filter of our own experience. There is nothing. There is nothing. There's an is infinite, pers- infinite qualitative gap between what God, God comes from God and what we can come with into ourselves. Now, it is true that if we follow in Him His way and we begin to experience him more, we will look back retrospectively, and from that vantage point, you will say, oh, He was there all along. But you can't prospectively look at it that way. You can't look at, oh, these are my gifts, these are my tendencies, these are my history, this is my experience, and all that. I can see that it's going that way. You can't do that. That is, logic, that is spiritually not a possibility. You can't join the dots yet. You have to come... Uh, and, uh, and die to yourself and come and follow God. And then, when God does something that is nothing, that, is, that cannot be calculated out of our own past experience, then what do we have to do we look back and say, Yes, it was there. There's, you can't look forward into it, but you, have to, you can look backwards. Does that make sense? All right. You have to be somewhere. You, you have to be at this place with God, walking with God. Yeah, you walk with Him, and as He walks, He. And you obey Him, and we obey Him, and He does things. and We come to a place where when we look back, we are actually quite a different person. But when we look back, we have understanding. But you can't do it by prospectively peering out into the future and saying, I think God's going to do this, because it is something that's going to be beyond you. And so God comes to, comes to Abraham and tells, and tells him these incredible things. I'll give to you and your offspring, uh, verse 8, the land on your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. I will be their God. Draw, draw, draw them close to me. And I will be, when he says, I'll be their God, I'm committed to them. I want to enter into relationship with them, in which they are committed to me and I'll be committed to them. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout all the generations. And this is my covenant, which you will keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So, what God is saying here is this. We ratify the covenant by, by, by sacrifice. But this is what affects the covenant, its circumcision. What he's saying is this, your flesh, you in the natural, cannot make that happen. Something has to be done into you. The covenant shall be in your flesh. It has to be effected into you, because you of your own self cannot make it happen. You don't have the power within you. You don't have the bandwidth. You don't have the scope. You don't have the the wherewithal to be able to do it. Something has to be done into you. It's because your flesh is impotent. Your flesh is impotent to do these things. Your flesh is not only impotent, it is impotent. It can't do it. It doesn't have the power to do it, right? And so he says, this is the covenant. The covenant is circumcision. I'll break into you. Unless I break into you, you will not be able to do it. You'll only have a piece of paper or, or, or tablet or, or, or mud, mud tiles in which these things are written. But you will not, ha- you will not have it. Because what, what causes it to happen is a miracle that must be done into you. Isn't that amazing? You can't do it. That explains the 14 years in which nothing happened. You didn't have it. It wasn't into you. Everything you did, you did it with the same impotent flesh that you did. You did everything out of the, 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 the powers of your own humanity, your own, your own experience, your own uh, abilities, your re- own resources. Out of these things, these things can't make covenant happen. They can make something happen, but it's not covenant. It's not God's purposes in your life. And so God says to him, I circumcise you. Now, circumcision is an interesting thing, and, uh, and uh, let's try not to be too squeamish about the whole thing. But in Colossians, we understand this from the New Testament point of view, okay? In Colossians chapter 2, it says, verse 9, for in Him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Bodily, not just in the spirit, not just in as a ghost, not mystically, but bodily. Yeah. And you have been filled in been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Thank God. By putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespass and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. What is he saying? He said circumcision is a picture of baptism. And baptism has to do with the fact that you understand that your flesh is dead. It's dead as far as fulfilling God's purpose is concerned. Abraham, you know, later on, Paul says he is his flesh as good as dead. Baptism has to do with the fact that you die to your own abilities, your own resources, your own faith in yourself, faith in others as well. Circumcision has to do with the fact that we effect the fact that, yes, I am dead. I am completely bankrupt without God. Baptism and circumcision has to do with the fact that when Christ came, He took upon Himself that impotent body that we have. He took upon Himself our body of sin. He did not take upon Himself a neutral body that can be relatable, that experienced temptation. He took upon Himself our (laughs) body of sin, our particular body of sin, that's what you mean by the incarnation. The incarnation had to do with the fact that when Christ came, he took upon himself our body of sin. Yeah. He was made in the likeness of sinful flesh, it says. He did not take on human thing that was human flesh that was pristine. He did not take a, a, upon himself a pristine body. He took upon uh, himself a completely sin wrecked body. He took hims- upon himself all our Experiences, all our history, all our shame, all our uh, impotence right now. He took upon Himself all that stuff that that, that, that makes us who we are and makes us ashamed of it. When He he came upon Himself, He did not come to just repair us, our, our, our flesh, or our own personality. He came to kill it. And He took it upon Himself. Um, Athanasius and, uh, and, and some of the church fathers says, what has not been assumed has not been redeemed or has not been healed. If he did not assume a sinful body, that your sinful body, my particular sinful body, my particular impotent body, I would not be able to, he, to be redeemed. Because if he only took a, a, a pristine body, a neutral body, and, uh, and, uh, and took it upon himself and experience the temptations, we can only say that Jesus understands what we went through. Does that make sense? We can only say, well, yeah, I can relate to that because I also experienced that. But what what happens to my sin? What happens to to, to my disease? So the incarnation, what what, what the baptism tells us is this. Actually, God took upon Himself my disease. My own disease. If I were you, I'd be standing on top of the, uh, the benches. My own, my own experience. You know that thing that happened five years ago that I'm so ashamed of, I can't even talk about it. When I talk about it, my, my lips shiver. No, that one. That part in which I did harm to people and I, and I caused people to suffer because of all, what I did. And I so regret it and I can't even talk about it. Even when I talk about it, I get hives. No, even that. That particular incident He took upon Himself, that is the great thing about the incarnation. It did not just happen on the cross, it happened for 33 years of His life. So that the Son of God took an infinite to infinite death upon Himself, even as He was living. That's an amazing thing. The circumcision has to do with the fact that we recognize that our flesh cannot do it. We cannot affect the covenant. No matter how many times we sign on the dotted line, no matter how many times, how many many words and scriptures we've received, no matter how many times we've got a word from God and all that, it can't happen. It doesn't happen just because God promised it. It It has to be circumcised into us. It will cut into our flesh. Because it's the flesh that actually causes us to not be able to do our part. Don't you think? The covenant says, I do my part, you do your part. And I do it because I give you grace. But the flesh says, I can't even do my part. Perhaps that's why Abraham just fell on his face. and says, like, 14 years of failure. I can't do it. I have lots of hopes. I have lots of dreams and all that. I just cannot do it because my flesh... Is uh, infirm. And so circumcision in, in, uh, in Colossians chapter 2 has to do with the fact that we were dead. We were dead. That means cannot effect. Can't do it. No matter how much I want, I can't. We are dead in our uncircumcision. And circumcision has to do with the fact that Christ did something. you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God. Isn't that amazing? Circumcision has to do with the fact that when we, when we trust God, we trust that God will move powerfully. We don't base it upon the fact that, okay, I better, better, not, better not mess up. I better not mess up. I must do my part. I must do my part. Okay, okay. This is not that difficult. I, 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 can, I can do it. I can do it. No, our faith is not in the fact that we can do our part. The faith is the fact that Christ's powerful working who, is in me. Who raised Him from the dead, you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him. Not only he, he made me alive, He made me alive to the, so that I can be together with Him. I love that. Isn't it? He didn't say, okay, go, you're fine. No, He made us alive together with Him so that we'll be with Him. That's the love of God, amen? That's the love of God. And so, when, so if we turn back to Genesis, God says, this is the covenant, okay? This is the covenant, not just a piece of paper or, or a mud tablet uh, that, that, that you can write on. It's not just a sacrifice. This is what happens. I took upon myself in Christ your infirmity, your flesh. So your flesh is marked by me. Your flesh is no longer what you're going to live for. Your flesh is dead. You never live according to that anymore. That is what affects it. When that happens, suddenly something opens up miraculously in ourselves, in our flesh. We thought it was not possible. We didn't think the miracle was possible. Christianity is predicated upon a miracle happening. You cannot live the Christian life. You cannot make it happen. You cannot just do your part, so to speak. Amen? Thank God. Thank God. Now, it's harder for those of us who have our lives all together and we've dotted our I's, crossed our T's, and everything's in good order. It's harder for, for, for these people to, 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 to feel rejoicing about. But if you are a person who has been an alcoholic, and whose life has been completely chaotic, and know for sure that you cannot correct your mistakes, because you'll continue making the same mistakes and the same sins, and make the same harmful, harmful behavior, if you know that, then this is good news for you. Because it's good news for your flesh that's been the perpetrator of so much suffering to other people. And to yourself. If you know that, you will know that when God says, this is a circumcision, I'm going to do it, do it in, I'll, 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 I'll do away with this. Your flesh. So the circumcision has to do with the mark of God, the sign of fact, that one day, two thousand years later, uh, 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 one day, thousands of years later, Christ would come and effect that circumcision. All this was done in faith according to Hebrews chapter 11 that this would happen. Amen? Amen. So that's, that's important. You may be feeling, I've been waiting and waiting and waiting and it's not happened. And I believe that when God speaks to us, after much of a wait, He's ready to do a work in us. If there are some of you, some of us, who have felt unfruitful, far away from God, somehow, the feeling that the mind just can't hear from God, just can't do it. I remember feeling that way when I was in my 20s. I was in a church in which people were just so prophetic, so able to hear from God so accurately. Like, to me, I just felt like a piece of rubber, like I got rubber in my brain. And things would just bounce off, just bounce off. How, come, how did you get all that? How come you could hear from it? And I remember thinking, God, if you can help me to hear from you, I'll give the rest of my life to helping other people to hear from you. Because if I can hear from you, then anybody can hear from you. But then something had to happen in me and it was not by trying to practice techniques, but it had to do with something that had to break in my my own life. Circumcision had to break my dependence on flesh and my holding on to it. Does that make sense? And so this is is a, a... This was what was happening in chapter 17. We are are still on chapter 17. The first thing is that he gives us a new name, which means he wipes out our old name. That regardless of what our experience is, he wipes it off. And what does it do? It sounds so impossible that Abraham cannot help but laughing. In verse 17, Abraham fell on his face and laughed. Later on, Sarah also laughed. Away. Because it is laughable. It is laughable. And I'm going to invite you to just do something that is, seems well-nigh impossible. To, And that has to do with opening ourselves to that which is not from anything plausible that we can make for ourselves, but that God will do that laughable thing upon us. We don't know how it's going to happen, but we open ourselves to Him. It is for Him to do. Okay. Let's move, in. Move, move on. And Abraham is faced with the utter impossibility of it. The utter implausibility of it. And so he answers God and says, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah who is 90 years old, bear a child. Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No. When we are faced with the impossibility of a situation, when we are faced with 14 years of nothing happening, what we do is that we revert back to Ishmael. Ishmael is what we already have. Ishmael is what has comforted us, given us hope before, that we will not be barren, that we will be a nation, we will be a this, we will be a that. Ishmael has to do with the fact that by the flesh, we have certain things that we can protect and we can hold on to, that give us hope, They comfort us. And so here's God speaking in such an unrelatable way, speaking of that which is, which is a million miles away from anything that we can, we can intuit for ourselves to even believe. And Abraham's being taken by God upon this million-mile journey out of safety, out of security, into this place where God says, I'm going to do this for you. Enjoy the ride. And he's on this ride, and he's going like a million uh, miles uh, uh, an hour. And he's getting scared. And the only thing that has... He has to hold on to is the fact that I've got Ishmael. I've got Ishmael. And so there's something about us that tends towards Ishmael. We tend towards Ishmael because Ishmael's safe. Ishmael is safe for us. Ishmael is what we crave after. What we want is for whatever we have to be preserved because at least it gives us some ground to stand on. That's why being a Christian is, requires so much courage There's nothing simple or easy about it. Christianity is definitely not an opiate of the masses. It is something that takes courage because of the fact that you have no ground to stand on except God. And if God doesn't exist, you are completely uh, in trouble. And so Abraham craves towards Ishmael. And God says, when he says, Oh, if, oh, if only Ishmael might live before you. So God, I, I, Abraham is saying, Please let the Ishmael live. Okay. Can, I, can I hold on to my little Ishmael? You've taken away everything to me. Just give me, give me, give me Ishmael. Ishmael is my last source of hope. God says, No. God says, No. That is the circumcision. The cir- circumcision happens when God says no to certain things that we had depended upon, we we've have we've, 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 we've relied upon. He says, if only Ishmael can live, give me whatever I have. Let me just preserve. And may I suggest to you that much of Christianity is all about that, preserving Ishmael, preserving security, preserving prosperity preserving our finances, preserving our relationships, preserving our family, preserving... All these things. And God promises to do what we need. But what Abraham had done is that the spirit of what he was doing was just moving towards, tending towards Ishmael. Ishmael becoming this freestanding, autonomous thing that he could depend upon that gave him comfort. And God said no. And it's in this no... That God circumcises us. Brings us to an end. Have you experienced that? I remember that time when uh, my, my parents had just started a church and it we was so great. And then the Lord spoke to me to go to this other church. And I wanted to hold on to what I feel comfortable with. Please, please, Lord. Can't the two things coexist? And like many people who have this, it's neither this nor that. Yes or no, it's both and. And I remember I was such a both and kind of person. God, it's both and, right? It's both and. And the Lord was saying, no. And I felt that. I felt the cut in me. For two, year, for, for two, two weeks, I just wrestled with it. I could not sleep for about two weeks hardly got any sleep until finally I could feel myself telling God I can't, I can't let go I can't open my hand you have to open the hand for me because I can't do it myself it's too injurious to actually do that And by the grace of God he just opened my, my hand and I could say okay Lord whatever it is the moment I said yes Something changed in me. Some, some, I was liberated. I was no longer going to God to preserve whatever Ishmael I had. I was free. God, wherever you want to go, let's go, let's go. For the next few years, I traveled and uh, and 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 did the conferences and traveled to many places without any salary. Somehow God would... would uh, supply. And I was not worried. There came the point, I just said, God, you want me to go? I'll go. Do you have any money? No money. But you will do it. Somehow my faith was set free. I could do things that I would be too scared to do before that. Something something of the fear had left. That circumcision had to do with the, the fact that I said yes to God's no. Amen? And sometimes what happens is that by doing that, we actually let go of our own, um, our own security. I want to say something related to that. I think there is a religion out there And it is in churches, it's in temples, it's in mosques, it's in places of worship, but it's also in church. It's called the religion of non-messiness. It's called the religion of non-messiness. The religion of non-messiness has a lot to do with the fact that we would love order and not chaos in our life. Chaos, for some of us, makes us very, very, very fearful and worried. So some of us, being out of control is completely um, traumatic. The religion of non-messiness has to do with the fact that we carve out our life and create a certain order in our life that will cause our lives to not fall into messiness that other people experience. And there are actual parts of Scripture that can actually support this religion. Everything should be done in good and should be done decently and in order. If a man not work, let him not eat. There's something scriptural about being things done in an orderly manner. Don't you think? The Christ- Christian life is not just a life in which we're just cool, let's go. It's not flaky. There's something that's grounded. It's grounded. And so there's a way in which as Christians we can find reasons why we should be living a life that has order and not messy. Yeah? Being messy is a bad testimony, don't you think? You've seen those Christians, they're the flakes, right? They're just constantly, God said this, God, that uh, I'm going to do something crazy and all that, and it causes suffering to themselves as, as, as well as others, and it's an embarrassment to the church. That's true, that's true. And sometimes, what, but what happens is that, we are so afraid to be exposed to the vastness of what God can do that we create a certain order, a contingent order, an order of our own making that will cause us to be able to safeguard the Ishmaels in our lives or the things that are precious to us. The only problem with that is that it creates another order and it creates another kingdom. It's not ordered by God. It's ordered by ourselves. It's actually ordered, and it's a construct that we create out of our own fears and our own intuitions and our own particular preferences to such an extent that the life that we experience is about this small. And this is, and we use this small circle of what I'm going to do, and this is what I'm going to do my, with my time, this is what I'm going to do as my strategy to, to be in order and not uh, messy. And this religion of non-messiness Is placed upon everything that you do. The whole world is bigger, and God is bigger, but you will stay within that small circle. There was a, in Greek mythology, there was a thief and a murderer. His name was Procrustus. The thing about Procrustus is that he was, he killed and murdered many people. And how he did it was that he would take his victims, and he would put them on a, what we now call a Procrustean bed. And if the, the, the person was too long, too tall, he would cut the legs off. And if the person was too short, he would stretch him out to fit the bed. So the Procrustian bed is a bed that is preset so that whatever is put in that bed will have to fit that bed. Procrustus. Procrustus was killed By Theseus, some of you know that, right? You know how Theseus did kill kill Procrustus? He took Procrustus, he put him on his own bed and killed him. But so that he will not experience pain, you know what he did? He did him the service of cutting his head off first. So that when he cut his legs off, he didn't feel the pain. Procrustian has to do with the fact that we can sometimes impose upon what God does and compose upon reality our own thing that we have been committed to. We are committed to not living by faith. We are not committed to looking at things only from the lens of our own understanding, our own experience, our own preferences, and all that. And what God does is that He circumcises that. And some people, because of that, they will miss out on what God's doing. Their their experience is about one handkerchief strong. But that's very, very attractive to those of you who have experienced disorder in your life. If you are in disorder, you will tend to want to go to someone who's very, very orderly. The only problem is that they don't experience much of God. What they do experience is their own creating. It's not... The life of the covenant—it's not the, the threefold thing that we're talking about. It's not full. It's not abundant life. It is life, but it is ordered. It's manicured. It's like the 18th-century gardens that the English had—the the, the Augustan period in which everything of li- of, of nature was considered as as uh, as chaotic, right? Alexander Pope, you know, if you read, you know, the Dunciad, you know, everything's primordial. It's just completely. Um, chaotic, and man must try its best to shape trees and shrubs and all that. So you see all these things, all the, all the gardens that are very well shaped. Yeah? Because the universe is not safe. But what God wants to do is to bring us out into the wildness of Him. Unless you come into the wildness of Him, you will experience a certain order, but it's not the order of God. It's an imposed order. And it will make your, your, your life small. And then sometimes what happens is that God breaks all that and your, 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 your life is blown open and suddenly you realize that nature is scary, it is, it is bigger than you can imagine, and God is bigger than you, than you can imagine. And God allows you to enter into places of tremendous chaos. And your instruments of defining reality are no longer applicable. They're not, no longer effective. And everything changes. You live by your personality type. You live by your, your gifts. You live by your education. You live by your, your friends. You live by your, your principles of perhaps pleasing people or, or negotiating things and all that. And they all fall apart. Fall apart. And what God does, begin to do is, He begins to show us the no. And we're saying, let me hold on to Ishmael. Let me hold on to this security. And God says, no. The offense of it has to do with the fact that sometimes when God says no, it's because he has something better. And God said no, but Sarah your wife shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. And so here it is. God says no, there's a bigger yes. And Abraham is not sure whether he can believe the bigger yes. And if you can't believe the bigger yes, then all you hear is no. All you hear is no. We, uh, when we were, um, had just started the church, I think we were one year into starting the church, we rented a house and we knew that our finances were just sort of just, always every month, just always, you know, falling short or just enough. And we could not afford for the landlord to um, raise our rent. So we prayed a lot. We prayed that he would not do that, that we would be able to to afford the rental and all that. And then suddenly he did. He raised it by a lot. And suddenly our prayers were met by a no. We knew that we could not afford a house because we had tried before, and some of you have heard the story. We even had a Christian real estate uh, realtor to help us. And finally, he said, you earn so little, you should not even be thinking or presuming to, to be able to live in Pasadena you should live further out, and that could be possibility. And so we are faced with the fact that because of the impossibility of buying a house, and the fact that the only way in which we could survive would be to buy a house, but that would be impossible, we had a way of thinking, looks like God is not going to do it. God said no. It's either no or it's a tremendous miracle. And we can easily get offended by that. I want to put it to you that actually God, if He has offended you and you've only taken no for your, your answer, think again. Actually, there's a bigger yes. God said no, but Sarah will have her child. The covenant has to do with effecting all this supernatural stuff. But the supernatural stuff only happens when we come to the place where we hit the wall and we say no. We, we, we experience a no. An impossibility. And by doing that, sometimes it feels like travail. Sometimes it feels like an offense. But God is wanting to do something in our lives. Amen. I feel that God is saying, leave your religion of non-messiness. Because you will experience miracles. When uh, we were going to get married, Cindy and I, my partners in ministry decided that we were all going to live by faith for six months, so no salary. Cindy had a left her job to come and live in Malaysia for six months to get ready for the bed, for the wedding. It was going to be a huge wedding. In the end, about 1,300 people came for that wedding. We had to feed 1,300 people. And then we had to leave where I was ministering to come and start a very fledgling church here in America. And everything seemed to be impossible for us. And I remember that those days, in which um, God was actually doing, doing something, bringing me to the end of myself, you know. And so we said, if there's going to be a church, it's going to take a miracle. Um, And so for six months before we got married, we were not able to save anything. Um, There was no salary. I realized that even if I had my salary, that that wouldn't be enough to buy a ring as well as feed 1,300 people. But I had experienced a little bit of what God has been doing over the years. And so we had come to a place where we covenanted with God. He says, we are wanting it to be you. So we didn't tell our needs to anybody. We didn't out send, sell out a prayer letter or anything like that. We just said, Lord, if it's something that you're going to do, you're going to have to do it. You have to pay for the wedding and you have to get us started. There was no salary when we came to, to America to start the church. Cindy did not have a job to go back to. So we were going to be stepping out on the edge and believing God for something that we had not seen Him do before. The scope of it was immense. And just before we, the wedding, God began to bring people that we had not even approached, and they just brought. We had flowers, we had all that. You know the movie Crazy Rich Asians? The one who did the flowers did our flowers free. The one who did the flowers for crazy rich Asians. We just saw her when when we came back, uh, went back to Malaysia. We got those flowers. Well, not those flowers, but similar. The cakes, the food, all provided for, and we got gifts that were enough for us to be able to survive. On the day before we left Malaysia to start to, to say goodbye to my, the churches that I had been pastoring and to start a church here, we knew that there was no salary that would be arra- arranged because we were doing this by faith. I can tell you now because it's past. I would not have been able to tell you then because it would not have been right for me to tell you this is my need. Because what God was wanting to do is do a thing by faith. And the night before we left, a group of five men came and said, Michael and Cindy, we want to sit you down. We have some very important things to talk to you. How are you going to survive? I hummed and howled and said, God will provide. And I shared with them stories about how God is going to provide. And these businessmen said, Be that as it may. I don't know what they thought about our faith. Be that as it may. We we are covenanting to support you $2,000 every month for the first year. And because of that, we were able to um, survive and to be able to make it. But what that, that has done is that it has cut into me something that no matter what you say, I cannot not believe anymore. I cannot not believe for things so that when they had and it had to do with sending our kids to 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 college, I cannot even total up what it what what it will cost. But all our children have been to private schools on the East Coast and God has supplied it. God has supplied it. That's just amazing. Without that, of course now they're going to post grad it's their problem now. <laughs> they will have to do that. The wells that we dug as Abraham and Sarah, they will have to dig their own wells yeah, to believe God. If you want to raise up children, you have to bring them to that place so that they get circumcised. That's why God spoke to Abraham. Even Ishmael has to be circumcised at eight days old. If you don't, the covenant, the supernatural thing will not be in their flesh. May I suggest to you that it is in your flesh now because of God. Amen? And so I want to invite you to not live the religion of false order, false kingdom, the religion of non-messiness. I believe that God calls us to be as ordered as we can, but irresponsibility is is, is not, not what God has for us. At the same time, we can set up a wrong order, an autonomous order that conflicts against God. Amen? Let us pray. Let's bow our heads before God. God wants to effect that abundance of covenant with us. Don't even for a moment think it's prosperity on demand. Don't even think that you can use Bible bullets to claim it and name it and think that God wants you to just be prosperous just by virtue of your words. The covenant is affected by death. It's death to our religion of non-messiness. It's death to those places in our lives that we rely on an Ishmael. God has so much for us right now. And there are some of us who have been waiting and waiting, and waiting, and wondering, does this Bible scripture, do they really work? Are they really true? Maybe they're just hyperbole. It's just ab- exaggeration. Just big talk. But it's not real. Or maybe it's just for the spiritual realm. Liberal theology just relegates it to the spiritual, mystical, non time timely way, uh, realm. No. God says, the covenant will be in your flesh. In your flesh. Not just in your spirit. Not in your mind. Not in your imagination. Not in your creativity. It's in your flesh. And when we, as we come before the Lord, we say, Lord, thank you, you've done it. It's inlaid in me. I live not for myself, but for you. I dismantle and let go of all my strategies to try to create a smaller order that's manageable. But I want to s- turn my eyes towards you to look full in your wonderful face engage gauge the, t- the seeming chaos of the universe in the light of your glory and grace. Something will turn today when you give your life over to him. Give to your, when, you give our, when we give our lives, our tendencies towards Ishmael, try to keep him alive. Oh, that Ishmael, we kept alive before you. We let it go. And we say, Lord, I will trust you.
1: Oh, God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, Selah, the earth shook. The heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. And Lord, we thank you right now that we're coming to times where you're moving. And so the earth is going to shake. The kings are being scattered right now. And, Lord, we thank you that you're coming. You're looking for Sinai in each one of us. You're looking for the place that you want to move. You want us to be moved by you and not by any other shaking. So we ask in Jesus' name that we would be ones that will so live with you in that holy place, so live with you, Lord God, that when the rest of the world is shaking and lost, Lord God, we are with you and we can bring you to them and show them the holy place that's there. We ask you for help. Would you right now even put us yes, around Lord. the people that are going to need to hear about this very soon? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you Amen. for your word. We Bless you, Lord.
0: Amen. So just lift up your life before the Lord. Today, make a covenant with God. Effect it. Let him establish it. And you say, Lord, I live not by my flesh, not, by, not for myself, but for you. Have your own way, O Lord. Amen.